This is an ABC podcast. For copyright reasons, the music has been edited. 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 To hear the full tracks, listen to The J Files, Thursday nights on Double J. Or head to doublej.net.au and click on the track list at the bottom of each episode. Kaz Tran here. Welcome to The J Files, the podcast for people who love music. Each episode is like a quick music history lesson. We pick a different artist or band, we look at some of the most important moments in their career, and we celebrate their impact on music all in less than 30 minutes. On this episode, it's one of the most fascinating and endearing songwriters in modern music. Since starting out in Nashville in the early 90s, Gillian Welch has captivated audiences with her old-time sounds, gorgeous guitar work and exquisite harmonies with her partner, Dave Rawlings. The pair met as students at Berklee College of Music and bonded over a love of country music. By 1996, they'd released the debut album Revival, and the impact was immediate. It earned Welch the first of many Grammy Award nominations across her career, of which she's now won several. Many fans discovered Welch on the soundtrack to the Coen Brothers film Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But her early 2000s albums, Time, The Revelator and Soul Journey, are some of her most revered records. Here's Gillian Welch talking to ABC Radio in 2004 about what she loves about performing as a duo and why the pair perform under just her name. The acoustic duet, um, you know, with the two-part harmony, it was a form that was very popular about 70 years ago. (laughs) But it never goes out of vogue. I mean, I reckon the best Bob Dylan was when he was acoustic and clean and uncluttered. And so on, we could go through artist after artist. I mean, even when you listen to some of the, like, like say, Eric Clapton unplugged, like that, out of all the work that someone as prolific as Eric Clapton has done, to me, that's his best work. And we could keep going forever. It's, it brings out the essential musicality of an artist. It is a unique way to play. I mean, there are things I could talk for a long time about, you know, what I like about it. It's very, very exposed. As a performer, there's virtually nothing to hide behind. But on the other hand, if you do something good, it's also very easy. You know, it's right there. Everything is very at the forefront. And I love um, the subtleties of the two guitars together, the acoustic instruments, and actually being able to hear the sounds that they make together. Now, Gillian, this is very much a partnership, but you're the famous name. Oh, I'm just the band name. Yeah, we're the band called Gillian Welch. And that happens to mean then that Dave doesn't get as much of a mention. Is that part of the dynamic? It's the way he would have it. I mean, I can tell you that for sure. Mm. You know, it's just if we'd known starting out, um, you know, we, we started performing under my name because we sort of came up through the ranks of 
uh, songwriters in Nashville. And it's so, that whole town, that whole scene is so based on the songwriter that, you know, I was the predominant songwriter, so we were just billed under my name. Um, had we come up in another town, Austin, New York, Los Angeles, we probably would have had a band name. But it, because we were coming out of this tradition of um, the songwriter, uh, we just started performing under my name. I was getting the gigs because I was the songwriter. And it's not an issue for him? He doesn't care? No, no. And we would, for a little while when we started, we we would use both of our names, like Simon and Garfunkel, you know, in a duet type thing. But it's too long. That's a bad band name. Gillian <laughs> Welch and David Rawlings. <laughs> It's a bad band name. Welsh and Rawling sounds like a legal firm. Yeah, it's just, dude, it sounds like a shipping company or something, you know? We'll get your goods there on time. And we're gonna do it anyway Even if it doesn't pay In 2016, Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings were back in Australia touring. I caught up with a pair for Double J's Don't Look Back podcast, a podcast where I got to ask all sorts of interesting people about one song that had a profound impact on their life. It was amazing to chat with Gillian and Dave and hear about the song that deeply affected each of them. That's the way that it goes. Music can be a great way to learn about life. Gillian Welsh and Dave Rawlings are a power music couple who thought a lot about this. We did meet at Berkeley, yeah, at an audition. Uh, there was one group of people who played country music at Berkeley. Only and, one? Uh, only one. It was you know, mostly a jazz and heavy metal school. Oh, heavy metal? I didn't know that about Berkeley. Yeah. Well, at the time, I mean, it was at the time. You know, yeah, right. it was sort of the early '90s, and that's kind of you know, hair bands had had their day, and now there were a lot of kids trying to learn how to do it, <laughs> trying to learn how to shred. And Berkeley was the place. So, but and then there was Dave and myself, um, yes. and a handful of people who liked country music and old time music. And I just, I was so good at shredding that it just had no, it, you know, I just, <laughs> I just, I, I couldn't keep doing it. <laughs> But, um, yes, to your question, I did think that Dave and I had a very good natural blend right off. Um, actually, we, we didn't sing together as a duet until we had both moved to Nashville, though. We had only sung with other people and never just the two of us. Sort of like in pick and circles, you know, with all of these, these friends. And, I mean, if I'm going to be honest, there were probably two other guys in that group who probably had a better natural blend with Gillian, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But our blend was good. It was okay. And, you know, we just started working on it and just, you know, taking the time and singing a lot together. And it's amazing how much you can learn about singing with a person and how you can develop a sound. Um which Sometimes I, th- I think the most important thing from those early days and continuing on to this very day is I've just never met anyone with whom my aesthetic aligned so completely. Dave and I, there's there, there's never any question, there's never any discussion really about 
what is best. When we hit upon the thing, we both know it. You could take a song and chances are that we'll both have the fa- the same favorite word in that song. <laughs> you know, we just respond so alike to music. And yeah. then I guess gradually adapting that to, you know, playing and writing is kind of the, that's what we've been trying to do for a lot of years now. Well, I would suggest rather successfully, Mr. Rawlings. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, come on. I <laughs> just wanted to get back to what you'd mentioned uh, just previously there, David, uh, about playing a song and having your ears opened. I wanted to ask you to tell a story about a song. Now, I don't know whether it, it may be a similar artist or song for you both, sings as you like similar things and similar mm-hmm. words, but a song that was an important part of your musical path, maybe opened your ears to new possibilities or shifted your understanding of what music could be. Well, the first thing that springs to mind for me is a song that I'm sure that Gillian loves too, and uh, I mean, I know she does. Um but, I, but the experience was, you know, happened to me before we had ever even met, and uh, it's a song that I ended up um, actually recording as part of a medley on my first record, but it's it's called Cortez the Killer, and it's a Neil Young song. And I remember long before I ever played guitar, a very uh, formative listening of this song. I was at a friend's house, and his parents still had a turntable set up, and uh, one of his older brothers had a Neil Young record, and, you know, this this song came on, and I just remember the way that it started and the space that it created from the from the very the downbeat, just the way, you know, the needle hit the track and all of a sudden there was everything was transformed. And I was lying on the floor in in his house, you know, when it was the winter time, and sort of watching the light come through the window. And this beautiful improvisation starts on his guitar and it just goes on and on and it seemed like By the time his vocal comes in, which is a couple minutes, two, three minutes into the song, I'd sort of forgot there was ever going to be singing. And it was just that sort of patience and the way that his playing sort of led you through that landscape that I think, I don't know, when I finally started playing guitar, I recognized uh, what a big effect that it had on what I like and what my ears, you know, want to create or what my mind wants to create. guitar playing in Cortez the Killer. Was there anything about Neil Young as a songwriter as well? That um... Oh, I, I, was a, I was a big fan of Neil Young, and I, I think his songwriting is tremendous. Mm. Um, and I think that's a beautifully written song. Um, but, you know, what I, what I took from that particular performance was sort of uh, the thoughtfulness with which he sort of 
he he moves through that music the way that you can sort of just trace it on a line and every time i listen to it i enjoy that journey i don't know that's what really struck me the most about it so they trace it on a line as it, it being uh, quite a narrative that you can you can follow the story as it's unfolding is that it's what almost you mean more of a Almost more of a panorama. Yeah. Almost well you, more of a landscape, you know. And that you can follow the narrative of his guitar playing, mm. you know, whatever that what the what the the notes are saying. And certainly this the actually I heard a funny thing about that recording. I don't know if it's true, but I, I thought I read one time that there was a problem on the master tape and there's actually a verse in Cortez the Killer that uh that was excised um, because of some sort of a technical problem. And so the, the narrative does jump a little bit in terms of a story, which I always like. There's a mystery there. And, you know, that's another wonderful thing about recording is little accidents like that uh-huh. happen sometimes and, you know, may have left a little bit of mystery in that story that is <laughs> a good thing. And and there are all things that I, I can definitely trace in your own music for this oh, song ha- having, you know, a, a lot of influence in, in what you and Gillian do now. You know, that panorama you speak about, Gillian. Absolutely. And the, the mystery sometimes with a, a story that not all the details are always there. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, that's something that we take from uh, traditional music and folk music is that that mystery. I mean, oftentimes in the folk genre, it's... The mystery comes from stuff that is unmentionable, stuff that you can't really speak about, you know, adultery and uh, children out of wedlock and all sorts of things, you know, all sorts of unsavory things. (laughs) And it's implied. And, you know, one of the things that I kind of took from from folk music and traditional music and those types of narratives are this respect for the listener that they're going to be able to follow along and connect the dots themselves. You don't need to spell everything out. And we definitely kind of partake of that uh, in our storytelling, you know. I I don't feel the burden of spelling everything out. Right, and and there's a lot of these beautiful old traditional songs that if you look at an early source, you might see that there's, you know, it might be a great long ballad with 12 verses or something. And then gradually over the years, only the best two or three or four are remembered. And these stories end up with these beautiful holes in them. And only the best language survives and only the best poetry survives. And somehow the backbone of that story, the verses that are left out, uh, are still, you know, you haunting them. Yeah. yeah, they haunt the song. Gillian, so, well, well David uh, talked about Cortez the Killer as being, you know, a, a really key song for opening uh, up his ears. Have, have you got one or would you say that one or what, what well, would you say? Well, I mean, I, I love that song, but I would have to say the Stanley Brothers, Rank Strangers. It's a bluegrass song. It sounds like one of those songs like, how could someone possibly have written this song? But, of course, that's the beauty of Carter Stanley's work. I first heard Rank Strangers when I was living in Santa Cruz, California, uh, with a bluegrass DJ named Mike McKinley, and he had a great record collection, and he he put on this old Stanley Brothers record. It was probably from the late 1950s, early 1960s, and Rank Strangers started playing, and I was actually scrubbing the bathtub at the moment and I stopped what I was doing and just walked almost in a trance over to the stereo 
I just loved the sound of it so much. It was like the folk music that I had grown up with, um, but just a little edgier, just a little harder, so bare bones, so primal. And then the beautiful poetry, you know, rank strangers. I don't know. It just, uh, it, it seemed out of time and yet for all time. Yeah. You know, there's a grittiness too to the, just, just very the, the gritty. name of the song title itself. Very gritty. So much like blood and dirt in this stuff. Um, and not a bit cleaned up, not a bit prettied up. Yeah. But so lovely, you know, like the wind howling. You know, it was just, and it really moved me. And, uh, and I, that is really when I threw myself into writing and deciding like maybe this is what I was gonna do maybe maybe I was gonna write and play songs that, that really is what kind of showed showed me a possible road I wandered again through my home in the So that yeah. was a song where you reckoned upon the thought that uh, maybe I'm go- I have to dedicate <laughs> my life to this. It kind of was because I was listening to late punk music and Velvet Underground music and all the stuff that was around at that time. And I really liked the edge and the drive of it. But I, for various peculiar reasons, because I was sort of brought up by hippies, I, I grew up with an acoustic guitar, and I had never quite been able to marry the music I was hearing on records with the folk music I had grown up with. And when I discovered kind of the old-time mountain sound, suddenly I could it, it all made sense to me and made sense with my voice and... I'm kind of a quiet person, and so I I was never really going to be one to strap on an electric guitar <laughs> and rock out, but I wanted to play music, you know. So when I discovered the Stanley Brothers was really when I thought, oh, I could maybe do this. I almost feel like Carter Stanley as a singer just has an inherent sort of sadness and, and wisdom in his voice. And then when 
Ralph comes in and sings that high tenor, you know, there's a there's this incredible sort of ecstatic blend between the yeah. two of these brothers. And I know that, you know, on some level as a singer, I think Gillian has some of that inherent sadness or there's just there's there's the capacity there in in the way that you sing to to tell you know stories that some other voices aren't as good at telling and i think that that you have that in common with carter and i can understand why you might make that connection even if you didn't know you were you know but to hear that and go oh wait maybe this is someone was flashy he was understated and i really responded to that and identified with it you know, that there was power there, even though he was very kind of subtle. It's so interesting, you know, as we go around and we and we play these shows here and all over, really. You know, one of the really gratifying things is to feel people appreciate our quietness uh, in this world. You know, I think this is one of the things that is unique about what we do is we kind of make this quiet space. For well, people. and it's a great honor on some level when you're talking about the performances. You know, in that moment when, you know, sometimes you'll start a song and there might be a little bit of a murmur in the room. You know, it depends on if you're playing. You might be playing a place where there's a bar in the back and, you know, you're dealing with a little bit of, you don't really have the whole sound stage to yourself. And, you know, one of the most fun things about playing a show sometimes is that is that moment where the first time in the night where you really hit upon the blend of the instruments and the voices are just right or in the middle of a guitar solo and the whole room just goes quiet and sort of gives you all that space and you know they want to listen to that sound stage that you're creating and and they and they want the quiet you know and and you know that's that's kind of when you know you've started to get your stuff together. You know, <laughs> we, we never liked to play in the places that, you know, made people be quiet because then you didn't know if you were doing good or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's a measure, isn't it, of how much you're cutting through. If, <laughs> if you hear the audience kind of like, yeah, that, the noise, that hum dimming down a little bit. Um, but it, it's a quiet that's not exactly what I'd, I'd call restful, you know, because there, there are lots of dark corners <laughs> yeah. in your music. It's it's haunting almost. Yeah, well, it is. Yeah, and, and I guess that's also a constant in a lot of the music that you're both attracted to. So there, there's there there are a lot of dark corners and and places that you're exploring uh, through through the music that you love and the music that you play. Yeah, I always found that really comforting. In other people's music, yeah. Interesting with a way to describe it, Gillian. <laughs> I did strangely. I I wanted to know that other people had noticed the dark corners. It always uh, made me feel good. And somehow, the most tragic songs, the murder songs, uh, the the really dark stuff. I always really appreciated that too, because I felt like someone was trying to warn me and tell me, as a listener about things that were possible in this life and to both be ready for them and to have some compassion and some understanding of what the other humans around you might be dealing with. People are looking for a little more information about the world or about themselves and 
Yeah, I mean, and I know I learned more as a teenager about what life had in store for me from Bob Dylan than I learned from any other source. Like, mm -hmm. just because of the, the incisiveness with which he could draw a situation, you know, the way that you would just see something clearer than you'd ever seen it in life through those lines and that, that poetry and the way that poetry was married with melody and pitch and the way he would bend notes and the way, you know, you just get a feeling that is, is so incredibly rich and that's, you know, that's what we're all striving to do. That's the way That's my chat with Gillian Welsh and Dave Rawlings for the Don't Look Back podcast. It's a music podcast that explores how music soundtracks, punctuates and permeates our life. And you can find more episodes like that in your favourite podcast feed. The J Files is a Double J podcast. Make sure you like, follow and share. Our producer is Gab Berg. Theme music is by Art vs. Science. You can check out Double J anytime on the Triple J app or at doublej.net.au. I'm Kaz Tran. Thanks for listening.